Psalm 96, verse 1. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the nations be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The next passage comes from Matthew 28. We'll be reading verses 18 to 20. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The last passage, it comes from Revelation. We'll be reading verses 9 to 12. Revelation chapter 7. Verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all the tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dan, for that reading, and a big warm welcome to everyone here today. I uh, hope you're surviving the cold, uh, and I've pulled out those extra dunas and so forth. Um, during the week, my new cat peed on our bed, and uh, yeah, so that wasn't fun. We spent a few nights having to uh, uh, pull out the old duna, which is a lot thinner than we're used to. Anyway, uh, that's my story for the week. Um, a couple of quick announcements for you. Firstly, again, let me re-repeat and emphasize again for the upcoming AGM. If you are a member of our church, uh, it is an expectation that you come. And this year, we're looking forward to uh, hearing lots of stories of grace uh, 
in our time together. If you haven't registered yet, then after this service, please register for the AGM. The numbers of registration are relatively low compared to the number of members that we do have, so please register and put in your proxy if you need to. Remember, there's only two reasons, or two valid reasons for a proxy that I spelled out there too. After this service, there's a Q&A. Uh, we're using a slightly new system, so a QR code will come up at the end of the service um, for a pigeonhole uh, account, uh, and that will give us the opportunity to display the question up uh, so that we can all see what, uh, ben, uh, what I'll be answering uh, from today's sermon. So uh, let me pray and ask God to bless us as we look at this word. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak you speak to us through your word, and it is a wonderful and good word. And we pray that you'll help us to know you better, know your purpose and uh, your mission, as you have revealed through the entirety of your scripture. And we pray for your spirit's help to sustain us, give us energy for this day, lift our drooping eyes and our heads, fill our hearts with a greater sense of your mission and purpose, and help us to see our part and place in it. I pray too for myself that you help me to speak clearly as I ought, and we ask all of these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Mission. A specific task or purpose that a group is sent to accomplish. Groups from small community groups to the largest of corporations spend a long time and probably a lot of money crafting and honing their mission. Because it's their mission that will give them direction. It gives them purpose. It sets the course for their future. So we're going to play a little bit of a game. I want you to turn to the person next to you. And if you're live streaming, turn to the, uh, the group next to you. Uh, and let's see if you can guess the corporation from its mission statement. So here's the first one. To accelerate the advent of sustainable transport by bringing compelling mass market electric cars to market as soon as possible. Yell it out if you know it. It's Tesla. Who got it? Yeah? All right, next one. To bring inspiration and innovation. Whoops. Whoops. Okay. Uh, let me just read it. To bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Uh, footnote, if you have a body, you are an athlete. Have a think about that. I'm just going to fix this. And it works. All right. It is Nike. Sorry, I pushed the button and it, okay. For those who didn't know, I dropped my uh, clicker on the floor there and it exploded. Okay, next one. Uh, to refresh the world, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness, to create value and make a difference. I'll be really surprised if anyone gets this. It's so vague, isn't it? It's Coca-Cola. Yeah. Okay, something a little bit more specific. The maintenance of international peace and security. United Nations. Yay. Uh, let's have a think about some Christian organizations. To stand alongside our Christian brothers and sisters where they suffer discrimination and persecution by providing aid through our partners on the ground, encouraging prayer, telling their untold story, and speaking out on their behalf. Not quite. Ooh, not close, close though. It is Barnabas Fund. 
Oh, Faye got it. Last one. We share the good news of Jesus Christ in all its fullness with East Asia's peoples to the glory of God. And that is OMF, one of the Christian, organization, Christian missions organizations that we support here at SLE Church. And Barnabas Fund, we also support uh, SLE Church too. So how did you do? How did you do? Uh, when you think back on some of those mission statements, they, some of them make sense, aside from that vague one from Coke. Uh, and, you know, having spent years developing these mission statements, these mission statements inform why each company exists. It drives what they do. So the decisions they make align with their mission. So, for instance, if someone uh, came to Nike and pitched the idea of building an electric car with Nike, they'd probably say no because it doesn't fit in with their mission statement. Conversely, if you went to the UN with the idea of a running shoe, they might politely decline because it doesn't fit with their mission statement. The mission defines the purpose and gives meaning to the existence of the company. It shapes, it clarifies the goal being reached. Now imagine with me for a moment a church that has no mission, that is aimless. What would it look like? It might be a bit of a confusing place to be in. The preaching may not necessarily go anywhere. The fellowship Maybe stagnant, people would be coming more out of obligation rather than desire. Would that be a church that you would want to be a part of? A church that you would want to be a member of, to commit to? Unlikely. So then, what is the church's mission and what is SLE Church's mission? What is the reason for our existence? What goal are we meant to accomplish for God? Well, to find out what God intends for us, we need to start at the place where God has revealed himself and his plans and his purposes. We're going to begin with the Bible. We begin our quest for our mission at the start of the Bible, because in order to know our purpose as a church, we need to know why humanity was created in the first place. We begin in Genesis chapter 1. A lot of these passages are going to come up on screen, um, so don't feel um, uh, pressured to flip through your Bible. Also, if you've downloaded the bulletin uh, and got the sermon outline, all the passages are written down there. So let's just read these passages together and let them wash over us. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So let's go back to that start. A quick couple of quick observations here. First, notice that God creates humanity. There is a clear distinction between the creator and the creature. Second, God creates humanity uniquely. So unlike any other in creation, it is humanity which is created with the image of God. Now, to be an image bearer means to reflect his nature and his character. It is to, uh, and part of that will be to have dominion over creation to rule over creation under his rule and his authority as his representatives. Second, notice that humanity was to be fruitful and multiply. 
the part of ruling this world rightly was to populate this world. The, the growing population was to work for the same goal, to exercise dominion. So God, our creator, has created humanity uniquely with a special role to extend his good rule and order over the face of the earth. Now, because God is the creator, he is worthy of worship. One of the themes that runs through the entire Bible is that because God is creator, he is worthy of glory and worship and adoration. Now, we don't have time to pull up all of those passages, but if you would like, just have a look at Psalm 8, Psalm 19, and Psalm 139 to see these expressions and examples. But if you turn to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, which, you know, Pastor Ben only preached a few weeks ago, you'll again see this idea connected. God as the creator, worthy of worship. Revelation 4, 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So again, God is the creator. God has created humanity unique. We are made in his image with the task of ruling under his authority, and God has created everything and us and is worthy then of glory and our worship. Now, point 1A in the outline, you'll see a reference there to Colossians 1.16, which is that famous passage of Jesus being the one who created and sustains all things. Jesus, the one who made us, is also worthy of our worship. But we'll see why he's worthy of our worship for more than just creating us in a moment. Now, as with any good story, there is a complicating factor. If I told you this line... Little Red Riding Hood packed some baked goods to go to her grandmother. That is not a story. That's a report, right? You need a complicating factor, something to turn the story on its end. It's the big bad wolf and his appearance in Little Red Riding Hood that is the complicating factor. Or it's the appearance of a new love interest which two best friends fight over. Or the appearance of a strange sickness of creation which thrusts a young girl into the wide open oceans to sing Disney songs in search of answers. Something happens to complicate matters and move the story in a different direction. The Bible's complication happens really early. In Genesis chapter 3, the complication is called sin. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve doubt God's goodness and disobey God's command to not eat from the tree, uh, like a river source being poisoned, they affect the entire and affecting the entire river. So this one act of sin by Adam leads to all of humanity being born with a bent towards sin. Every person, every person is born with a deep-seated desire to rebel against God. Sin has many misconceptions here. Some people think of it merely as breaking God's silly rules uh, or that sin is just all about serious crimes like murder or stealing lots of money. But in the book of Romans, Paul is much more precise about it. What he says in Romans 1 to 3 opens up each person's heart and pierces it with the truth about sin. So this is how Paul puts it in Romans 1. In verses 18 to 20, Paul says that God's anger, his wrath, is being shown to the world. Because even though God's power and eternal nature can be known in creation, we've rejected this and done something else with that knowledge. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the big thing. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've given in to the terrible lie 
that God is not worthy of our worship, not worthy of wrapping our identity and security around. Instead of glorifying and worshipping God, we worship and glorify created things. We look at work and study, which God created for humanity to do, and we worship work hoping it will give us importance and significance and security. We look at food, which is God's good gift to us to nourish our bodies, and we worship it as the source, the source of satisfaction and joy. Right? Everyone wants to be a foodie these days. Cele- uh, chefs are the, the celebrities of our moment. We even take our children, whom God has given to us to shepherd to his glory, and we end up worshipping them, hoping that their good grades, their good behaviour, their reputation as a brilliant child will rub off on us as good parents and grandparents. Right? Or everything becomes, revolves around them. And the result of all of this is felt in our lives. We live with this gnawing sense of shame that we've dishonoured God. Our guilty conscience that something isn't, is wrong. We live with broken bodies and minds, with the exhausting idolatry to feed, ugly self-righteousness. But the results aren't just felt in our lives here and now. Ultimately, the result of uh, sin is the wrath of God. Because all sin, no matter how it is expressed, is ultimately against God. And because God is holy, he will not allow it to go unpunished. So, God created humanity with the purpose of glorifying and worshipping him. Humanity has rebelled against God and worshipped the creation rather than the creator. Does this mean then that God's plans and purposes to be glorified and worshipped are frustrated, that they can now never be achieved? Certainly not. We know that even though Adam and Eve fell, even though humanity is swept up in this, God would keep working his plans and purposes out. He would gather a people to himself, starting with Abraham and his descendants. He would draw these people, the nation of Israel, into relationship with him. He would protect them and provide for them. He would give them good laws to know how to relate to him and to each other. He gives them a system of sacrifice so they can continue to be in his presence. He lives with them like no other God has ever done. And he gives them good songs so that they can praise and worship him. Psalm 96, which Dan read out for us before, uh, just before this. A song of Israel shouting the praises of God. Oops. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He used to be feared above all gods. We ultimately saw in the end in Revelation 5 and 7, which we only saw a few weeks ago and last week, that God would ultimately gather a people around his throne to worship him and glorify him forever and ever, joyfully. But we also know that Israel, God's people, weren't the most faithful. Sin in their hearts meant they kept pushing away from God. They rejected him and chose sin instead. And so God took matters into his own hands. The good news of the Bible is that God will stop at nothing to make sure his glory and goodness are known. God sends his son Jesus in the flesh into our world. He lives with us. He breathes with us. He eats with us. The Apostle John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that he came to reveal the Father to us. Jesus came to live with us and die in our place, rejected again by God's own people. But when we read that story rightly, we see ourselves standing there rejecting Jesus as well. But Jesus wasn't some helpless victim. 
He willingly gave himself to be rejected, to die in our place as a substitute. Instead of us being rejected by God and dying for our sins, Jesus steps in to be rejected and to die for our sins in our place. And he did it out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Such a well-known verse, but such a monumental truth. So big, so huge to consider and grasp, that even when the Apostle Paul reflected on these grand truths, he couldn't contain his excitement or his words. In his opening chapter to the church in Ephesus, Paul overflows with the joy, with joy as he explains all of the riches and blessings that God has poured out to us in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as, uh, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, in the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. If that sounded fast, that's because that's actually all one sentence in the original Greek. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." Can you hear how much joy is overflowing from Paul? There is so much there to unpack. Too much, in fact. Right, do you remember, you remember when this is like when you were in school and you went to the drinking fountain, the drinking trough, and there was always that one drinking fountain that was broken and would just spray the water right up at your face when you weren't ready and you'd just get yourself all wet. When Paul speaks here in Ephesians 1 about the blessings that Christians receive, he doesn't take the believer to a drinking trough. He shoves their faces into a fire hydrant, spraying all of God's goodness and grace across the page. Now, the point of reading that quickly and not exactly looking at it in detail is just to see that God's purposes are right there, wrapped up in his son. He wants to shower all of these blessings on those he unites to Christ securing their identity and eternity to the identity and eternity of Jesus. This is why believers are gathered around the, lamb, uh, the throne of the Lamb in Revelation 5 to sing his praises. This is why we make so much of Jesus, because Jesus makes life with God possible. He achieves full forgiveness. His substitutionary death is what gives us new hearts that are willing to listen, desirous of obedience and rejoice to follow. This is our God who moves heaven and earth to bring all of these things for his purposes. And if God has done all of that, 
then our lives need to be radically altered. We need a radically new center to our lives, a radically new purpose for what we are living for. We are are not living to fulfill our desires. We are not living to chase our dreams. We're not living to make the world happy with us. We're going to have Jesus at the center of our lives. So the goal of our lives will be to glorify and worship God. And you do that by bringing all of life under the lordship and control of Jesus. We say yes to Jesus and no to ourselves. And sometimes that will mean hard decisions. We're not going to settle for what is easier when it comes to following Christ. One of the tests of a genuine believer is whether or not they are willing and able and work through hard decisions to follow Christ. Years ago, I heard the story from Don Carson, who had been in a situation in a church where one of the church elders had up, had committed adultery and left with his secretary. Um, this was a, one of the elders in, in their church, and he was sitting with one of the other pastors and trying to debrief about all of this. And Don Carson says, he was sitting in a passenger seat, and the pastor said to him, Don, I've come to the conclusion that I think our friend was never a believer. What do you mean, never a believer, Don said? You know, he's, he ended up as an elder of the church. What, what do you mean, never a believer? And he said, when we, asked, when we sat down with him... We asked our questions. He was unrepentant. He didn't think he had done anything wrong. He was the victim of a bad marriage. That's why he upped and left. And then we realized afterwards that he had never in his life made a hard decision for Christ. When he was younger, he grew up in a Christian family. When he grew older, he wanted to be a doctor, so he became a doctor. He wanted to study at university, so he studied at university. He wanted to become a specialist surgeon, he became a specialist surgeon. He wanted to become an elder in his church, he became an elder in church. He wanted to commit adultery and have an affair, he committed adultery and had an affair. He had never in his life made one hard decision for Christ. I know there are some who have been listening in, and that's something you've got to reflect on too. Are you choosing an easier path in life? Or are you actually making hard choices for Christ to follow him? On the flip side, when we say yes to Jesus, we're also saying yes to what is actually best for us, for what is joyful. Having Jesus at the center of our lives, it doesn't mean that, that it, it means that Christianity is not a side hustle, it's not a hobby. It's the whole of life. Having Jesus at the center means we're taking our place in God's big story. So much of today in our world, there's so much of an emphasis on on being on the right side of history. Uh, If future generations have their eyes on us, then we have to make the right choices now. I mean, do we really want to be on the wrong side of the argument when it comes to the hot-button topics of today? Do you really want to voice that opinion about gender, about sexuality the Bible does tell us that history is moving towards an end point and the Bible also tells us that the right side of history is ultimately God's side because no matter how fierce the argument today no matter how threatening the cancel culture and no matter how what the consequences are of going against our world all of history will one day bend the knee and bow before Jesus 
and his opinion will be the only opinion that matters. Putting Jesus at the center means taking your place in God's big story, a story that revolves around the Son. Saying no to hard things, saying uh, no to easy things, making hard decisions for Christ. So, what does that look like for us today? Let's take a break. Let's stand and stretch because we've got a lot more Bible to walk through in a second. So, let's all stand and stretch. And if you're at home, uh, feel free to stand and stretch with us. We're about to explore Matthew 28. We need to all the energy uh, and focus be able to get through this quickly as well. All right, let's grab a seat. Okay, so uh, we saw at the beginning corporations, they they spend a lot of time and money crafting their mission statement, which is their reason to exist. Now, thankfully, the church does not need to do the same. We don't need to invent the mission that we have for ourselves. Because before Jesus left, his disciples gave them one last talk. And in his famous words of the Great Commission, Jesus tells his disciples what it means to put him in the center of our lives, what it means to be a part of God's story every day. Jesus told his disciples what their mission is and how to bring him glory and honor and worship. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, a few things to notice from these very familiar verses. Firstly, there is one big imperative in these verses, and that's the command to make disciples. The word go there has more of a sense of as you're going, so it just assumes that you're getting out there. It's not necessarily the big push. The big push, the big imperative, is make disciples of all nations. So the chief mission of all believers is to make disciples. How do you do that? Jesus gives two sub-clauses to that big task. You make disciples by one, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and two, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So let's look at the first subclause, baptizing. Uh, the word here, when you, hear, when you hear the word baptism, you often conjure up the, in your mind um, dunking people in water, uh, putting them under the water and bringing them back out. The water ceremony is what we often have in mind. I think, though, that the word here isn't necessarily about that. Uh, first, we, we read in verse uh, 19 there, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But the phrase is literally baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In, baptize, in baptism, we don't baptize into the name of the Father. We baptize into water in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is asking disciples to, baptize, to, to, asking disciples to be baptizing people directly into the Trinity. So what's going on here? See, the word baptize generally, is, is not a translation of a word, it's a transliteration, because the Greek word for baptize is baptize, is baptizo, right? Uh, it means to immerse, to surround. And often in the New Testament, it's a metaphor for going deep or following the teachings of someone. If this is literally about water baptism, then the two or three baptisms that we actually do see in the book of Acts don't follow that formula. The baptisms we see are in the name of Jesus, but not in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. They're just in the name of Jesus. 
Paul himself says later in Corinthians, I have come, come to preach not to baptize, which would be odd if this was a specific command about water baptism. What's going on here is I think Jesus is saying disciples will be immersed into an understanding of the Trinity. The name of the Father, Yahweh. The name of the Son, Jesus. And the name of the Spirit. See, disciples of Jesus will grow in understanding the work and nature and character of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's hard work. The Trinity is a complex doctrine to understand. It is, after all, trying to describe the very nature of God himself. So we should expect it to be difficult and complex at times. But a disciple's job will be to learn and grow in knowing our Trinitarian God. Secondly, a disciple will grow in knowing what Jesus commands what, and to obey that. Now, this is what Jesus has said elsewhere as the daily act of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. Big and small, hard and easy decisions to follow what Jesus says. Now, it would be the role of the, the apostles in what they write and the gift of pastors and teachers to the church to help equip all the saints to follow Jesus, to obey him. So there are two, the two tasks, the two jobs for every disciple. Growing in knowing our Trinitarian God and listening to Jesus and following his commands. Now Jesus gives this command because he is supremely qualified to do so. So you see there in verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You can't get more power than that. Right? There is no power or authority in all of creation that is above Jesus. Because Jesus has all authority, he can command his disciples to do these things. But then at the end, we also see Jesus promises that this task of making disciples will not be done alone. He doesn't just tell you the job and go, go for it, good luck, see you on the other side. He promises to be with his disciples always. Now, we haven't touched on it much in this this sermon, but this is essentially the promise of God's Holy Spirit to be with Christians, to empower them and help them to do this work. Now, let's put all of this together. Let's get the big story that we've looked at in terms of God's mission uh, through the whole of Scripture. And let's put that together with this great commission here. And what do we get? We get a mission statement for believers that, that reads something like this. I wish I'd put this on the PowerPoint, but let me just read it out. God seeks his honor and glory above all else, achieving that through the proclamation of the death and resurrection of his son to believers that they might mature into the likeness of Christ as disciples, and to unbelievers, that they might come to faith and repentance and become disciples. So let me read that again. God seeks his honor and glory above all else, and he achieves that through the proclamation of the death and resurrection of his son to believers. Right? We preach the gospel to believers to help them grow in maturity in the likeness of Christ, to grow as disciples. And we preach that good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to unbelievers as well so that they might come to faith and repentance and be disciples, become disciples. What does this mean? What does this mean for us today? Let's break this down into two parts, what this means for our church and what this means for us individually. First, what does this mean for our church? God's mission as revealed in Scripture obviously needs to be our mission as well. God's word, then, is going to keep shaping and reshaping our mission and what we do. 
It's going to inform and correct what we do. So as a church, we need to keep making disciples as our number one priority. We need to keep preaching the gospel and God's word to both believers and unbelievers. And so the Bible is going to be central in all that we do because that is the source of disciple-making. That is the place that we learn about how God has revealed himself as a Trinitarian God. That is the place where we learn what Jesus has commanded us and how we should respond. And obviously that's going to impact how, we, how and why we gather. In our Sunday gathering and in our fellowship groups, our groups are going to focus on making disciples by reading the scriptures together first and foremost. See, whatever else happens in our groups and whatever else we love about our groups it's going to be clearly secondary to this first task, to knowing God and to know his word that we might obey it. This will also mean that we're going to be, uh, going to be focusing not just on head knowledge in the studies. We're going to desire and work towards having God's word penetrate our hearts and flow out into our hands in obedience. Making disciples informs everything that happens here on Sunday mornings as well. From the songs that we sing to what we preach. It means that Ben and I are going to work hard in preaching a wide diet of sermons from Old Testament to New Testament to topical to doctrine to present everyone as mature disciples in Christ. It also means that the gospel would not be far from our lips and will be present in each sermon so that when non-believers visit and come, they will hear the foundations of what we believe and put our trust in. Friends, this is going to help us as well with one of the great temptations in church life to look at the numbers. We might trick ourselves into thinking that if we have high numbers, that we're doing something right, that we're fulfilling God's mission to make disciples. And I know that this is a common trap that many churches fall into because numbers are deceptive. Years ago, my brother Brian, who's also in ministry, is a minister down in Sydney. Uh, he was at a youth event. A number of his teens from his youth group went to this youth event. And, you know, there was flashing lights and lots of jumping up and down and lots of rave singing and all this. And my brother's biggest concern, however, was that the 15-minute message, 10, 15-minute message that he heard was completely vacuous. It was completely empty. It was a little bit of a kind of G-up motivational speak talk. Well, that's fine on its own. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But the biggest concern my brother had was that at the end of that sermon the preacher called for a response of faith and trust from the teens. And a whole bunch of teens responded by apparently putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And my brother was sitting there going, what are they responding to? They haven't heard the gospel. They haven't heard anything about what Je who Jesus is and what he's done. What are they responding to? So he grabbed one of the leaders of the event and he said, hey, I've got a bit of a concern here. Right? I've got a bit of a concern that in all of this tonight, we didn't hear the gospel. What are you asking your teens? What are they asking these thousands of teens here to respond to? And the leader came back and basically said, look, I hear your concerns, but look at the numbers. The numbers don't lie. Friends, numbers lie all the time. When you read the book of numbers, you see lots of numbers in there, <laughs> right? It's not necessarily a good thing when you get halfway through the book and the numbers dip. Numbers lie all the time. Numbers in church are really deceptive as a marker for how well we're going with God's mission. What will not deceive us, what will not deceive us is God's mission in God's word. So, 
Let us keep focusing on that and work, to hap- work for that to happen among us. Secondly, what does this mean for you individually? What is your mission statement in life? We all have a mission statement, whether articulated or not. But will it need to change in order to reflect God's mission for you? Now today, I can't, it's, it's, already, it's already quite late in some ways. Uh, I can't give you exactly everything practical you need to make that your mission. But today's message is really about raising the question of what is the mission in your life. After today's message, do you need to basically sit down and reflect on your main priority in life and how that's actually reflected in your life? Where does your energy go? What sucks up all of your time? What is it that you're really anxious and worried about in life? Now, you know, for a number of us here right now, school and studies and exams are the main focus, and that's understandable. But if you are following Jesus, how much of your life is centered around him? Or is he just merely an addition to your life? So Monday nights, you've got tutoring, you've got basketball on Wednesday nights, you've got music lessons on Saturday mornings and family time on Saturday nights, and then you've got church on Sunday and then fellowship group on Friday night. Are you treating Jesus as an additional element to your calendar. If he wasn't there, would he leave a gaping hole in all that you do? Is he central? Now, this is going to mean probably some tough decisions in order to be a part of this mission, in order to uh, embrace and hear and be a part of this mission. It might mean saying no to good things, to good opportunities, to experience life and grow in an area of interest. You might need to say no to these things because it impacts your ability to get up for church on Sundays. It impacts our ability to bring our kids to kids' church or to have energy for Bible study. And it will also mean saying yes to good things as well. And over the coming weeks, we're going to explore what those good things are, our core values as a church, built upon God's word and built on the mission of God. We're going to need to say yes to these things, not by way of lip service, but in genuine, heartfelt desire to obey God. So over the coming weeks, we're going to practically explore what it means for us to be on mission. The the big question for us today is whether or not we're on board with it. Let me pray and ask God to bless us as we take all of this in, that we might truly value what we say and truly value the mission that God has in his word. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this time. We ask now for your Spirit's help to help us receive what we've heard through your word, through the entirety of your word. Help us to have soft hearts, to embrace it, to recognize the, the ways in which our lives are just merely adding you in, fitting you around our schedule. Help us, Father, to know what it means to to have Jesus as central, to to think firstly of whether or not he is, and we ask for your kind grace over the coming weeks to learn what it will look like to have Jesus center in our lives. We ask that you will help us to embrace this mission for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Nice. Excellent. Um, Okay, so a few questions have come up. I'm going to start at the bottom of my list that I have here. Uh, How does God's intention for human work change before and after the fall? So how does work change? uh, How does the fall change the nature and and value of work? Uh, So firstly, before um, the fall, uh, work is given. Uh, One of the curses of, uh, of, 
uh, curses that are upon work uh, because of the sin of Adam and Eve is that now work becomes really hard and a struggle. Uh, you see a, a kind of a, um, the end of that kind of struggle, not the end of struggle, the, 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 a picture of what that struggle looks like uh, in big ways in the book of Ecclesiastes where work becomes, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the words of the, the, um, the teacher there, uh, vanity. It's like a chasing after wind. If you're trying to find meaning in work, if you're trying to find security, if you're trying to find longevity uh, in terms of your work now and the, the work into the future, uh, it's all up in the air. It's really hard to, to, to grab at that. Uh, work becomes hard and frustrated uh, because of the fall. The gospel we know redeems us, uh, and so... Uh, Part of how God, the gospel redeems work is that it gives us a, a different set of priorities and a different view of work. Uh, and so we can see work in terms of how it just physically supports us and our families, uh, how it serves uh, those around us in our community, how it um, helps to financially support and serve others as well. Uh, and so work has a different uh, mindset, after the, particularly after the gospel. So work is hard. If you're experiencing hard, uh, the difficulty of work now, whether it be in the workplace or if you're just in your studies, you're finding the exhaustion of it, that's about right. That's what it's meant to, that's what it's meant to be experienced in this life now. Um, the gospel, however, changes that. Um, and so let me just recommend a good book, The Gospel at Work, by Sebastian Traeger. And I understand that Revolutionary Work by William Taylor uh, is also a very good book to think through these topics. And especially if you're going into work, it'd be good to have an understanding of what the Bible says about these things uh, as you spend the next 40, 50 years of your life uh, going through it. Uh, okay, from the bottom as well. Considering the Great Commission is a commandment of Jesus... Considering the Great Commandment... Uh, the Great Commission is a commandment of Jesus, and disciples are people who obey his commands. How can SLE make disciple makers? So it's one thing to make disciples. It's another thing to make disciples who are disciple makers. Right? So how do you train people to train others? There's another way of putting it. Um, part of the answer is that uh, we need to have that mindset, all of us, going in. That we're not just receiving things, but that we're receiving in order to serve and love others and to do that and equip them as well. Um, you know, I think in Ephesians 4, the, the gifts of God to the church are pastors, elders, teachers, apostles, evangelists, so forth to equip the saints, and it's the saints who do the work of ministry. I read it that way. And so if we're all in this together, haha, ha, high school musical, uh, if we're all in this together, then we are all going to be learning and equipping uh, and being equipped. We're also going to be putting up our hands to lead. Uh, you know, part of our work as uh, leaders and elders and pastors of the church is to identify people to train up uh, for leading in ministries and maybe for pushing into full-time paid ministry. And so we need to be ready and available for that too. Uh, we all want us to be fat, faithful, available, and teachable. Right? Uh, and that's how SLE will make disciples who are disciple makers. Uh, we don't just want to make disciples and finish the gospel at the, that generation. We want the gospel to continue on to each generation. So that's what it will, will need to happen. Okay. How might elements of sin taint us in, a, in the way that we carry out God's mission, e.g. in the way we serve or evangelize. Okay, so sin is always ultimately self-directed, self-focused. What I want, what I desire. Um, even in gospel ministry, in evangelism, in serving, we can have that streak and that bent. Part of that is prayerfully acknowledging that before God. Repentance is the key as we keep serving. 
I don't repent once and then graduate on to serving. I am constantly living a life of repentance. One of my favorite quotes was from uh, Broughton Knox when he retired as principal of Moore College. And uh, people, I think the interviewer, you know, as they always do, said, what are, you going to be, what are you looking forward to in your retirement? What are you going to be doing in your retirement? How are you going to be spending it? And he simply replied, in repentance. Uh, and I thought that was brilliant, a brilliant example to remind us that we're all in this, uh, working this. We always have to repent of that sin. There's always a constant desire to thrust ourselves into the spotlight and to take and receive the glory. Ah, oh, Pastor Steve, what a great sermon. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Right? We always want that. My heart yearns for that. I know that. So I have to acknowledge that. I have to keep one of my constant prayers is, uh, may they forget the channel seeing only him. May they forget me. I'm just the channel by which you see Christ. I'm just the channel by which the message comes through. I don't want to be... Uh, I want to be encouraged. I don't, like, you know, not saying that. But I don't want to steal or ever rob the glory. John the Baptist says, uh, he must be greater and I must diminish. And that's my constant prayer as well. Um, so, yes, sin can take us always uh, and keep praying against it. Uh, keep encouraging, keep um, encouraging others to encourage you with that as well. Okay. okay. Um, all right. What does it look like for someone to bring their whole life under the lordship of Jesus beyond making hard decisions for Christ? Uh, the next, the, the other question, which is related to that, is what does it truly mean to do all thing to to do all things in life for Christ? This might be a bit of a cop out, but read the rest of the New Testament. Um, <laughs> It, it really is. You will see a constant pattern in the New Testament. What Christ has done for you, what we do in response. What we do in response is essentially what it means to live for Christ and to live under the Lordship of Christ. Um, we're going to be exploring some of those ways in the coming weeks with our core four values. So even next week when we consider that our, we value gospel expen- gospel-centered expository preaching, that means for us that we need to be expository listeners we need to desire uh, to hear God's word in this particular way. Uh, and that's part of bringing everything under the lordship of Christ, coming to church to listen to a sermon for Christ. Uh, so I would say um, keep reading the rest of the New Testament. Keep meeting with fellow believers to, to talk about these things and discuss these things together. Keep opening God's word as we meet together, one-to-one, in small groups, in, the, in church gatherings together. Uh, and, that's, uh, what we'll, we'll, and that's what it will look like. So, yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. Um, all right, I think that's about it for all the questions. Excellent. So let me encourage us to keep uh, wrestling with these things and uh, being encouraged by these things. And I'm really looking forward to the next few weeks as we get to hear our core values placed front and centre before us and praying that we all receive them uh, uh, and embrace them. So uh, thank you very much again, and uh, we'll see you then.